Instead, I'm going to say, welcome to Grumblers Anonymous today. Uh, And we're ending our Jesus stories, and uh, we're going to be doing a couple of different things. Like I said before, Jeff will lead us in worship next week while I'm out of praise and worship. Then we'll be back for Palm Sunday. We'll talk about the tears of Palm Sunday. And then we'll talk about the misunderstood things about Easter on Easter Sunday. And then we'll start a new series on the book of Ruth. I'm looking forward to that. But today we're going to talk about grumbling and murmuring. Now, what happens? Let me ask you this question to begin with. What happens when we play the comparison game? Well, the answer is pretty simple if we follow what Scripture says. Scripture says when you start doing that, you begin to grumble against the Lord. So just what is grumbling? Well, to show you that according to Lena, something she put down, it says doctor. So I show I actually know something. It's the Greek word, go good soap. Isn't that a great word? Go good soap. And go good soap simply means to mutter or murmur. Uh, it's a particularly dangerous sin for those of us that are Christ followers. The dictionary offers three different definitions for grumble. One is to show one's unhappiness with a critical attitude. Another is to make complaining remarks or noises under one's breath. You have to figure out what those noises might be. To murmur or mutter in discontent and complain sullenly. I love the second definition, the one that says make complaining remarks or noises under our breath because I think we've all done that at one time or another. And we usually, you know, we're sitting at a group of people and we kind of smile when we hear about successes of other people close to us. But under our breath, you know, we just kind of, we say stuff that nobody else should hear. Now, the Bible, uh, you might say, does the Bible talk a lot about grumbling? Oh, yeah, it does. In fact, uh, I don't think all these are on the screen, but uh, when you talk about grumbling, you generally go back to the children of Israel And I gave you some examples. You can hunt these up later. But these were Grumblers Anonymous. Uh, Exodus 15. So the people did what? Grumbled at Moses and said, what are we going to drink? We're out in the desert. Exodus 16. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Exodus 17. But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled again. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock of thirst? Well, we can go into the book of Numbers where it says all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation grumbled and said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died at least in the wilderness. Oh man, what a bunch of sad sallies those were. Well, of course, it all ended at the end of the Old Testament, right? No more grumbling. Oh yeah, there's more grumbling. Let's go to Paul, 1 Corinthians 10.10. Do not grumble as some of them did in the Old Testament he's referring to and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a pretty good warning. Or the Apostle James says, don't grumble brothers against one another so that you won't be judged. Can you identify a grumbler? Let me give you a few, a few things I thought about. If you don't know whether this applies to you, Uh, Maybe you'll find yourself in one of these three categories. Here's the first one. A grumbler is never satisfied with what they have. If it's money, guess what? They never have enough. If it's their house, somebody always has a better one than they do. 
uh, if it's grades in school and A minus stinks, I mean, what's the matter? Uh, I, I get something better. Uh, these are the people who have graduated with a master's degree in, in, in criticism and they've got a Ph.D. in nitpicking. See, nothing is ever good enough for them. The second way you can identify a grumbler is they've always got an excuse. They've always got an excuse. You ask them, for example, why they don't buy a new car. And they say, huh, the interest rates are too high. So you ask them again, they say, oh, that's because those new cars, they all cost too much. Ask them again, they say, well, buying a new car is nothing but a big ripoff. Or ask them why they don't buy a used car, and they say, well, we're just buying somebody else's problems. I know what you guys are up to today. Ask them why they don't fix up the car that they have, and they say, why throw good money after bad money? Grumblers. Maybe so you've been there, done that, I don't know. There's a third way. And this is that these people, these grumblers, and when I say these people, i got to remember I'm in these groups too at different times. They secretly believe that they can never succeed. The key word is secretly. Down in their heart, the grumbler believes that the, the cards of life are stacked against them. Show them a glass of water, for example. And they and ask them, is this half full or half empty? And they would respond to you, I don't know, but I bet the water is contaminated. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, that's a grumbler. Well, that brings us you know, full face into this little story that Jesus is telling in Matthew 20. And it begins in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, to understand this story, I think we need to put this into a little bit of perspective. I had to do a little bit of research about this landowner. And the way I pictured this landowner is kind of, he owned a huge ranch. Now, anybody know what the biggest ranch is in America? It's the King Ranch in Texas. Now, how big is that ranch? It's 825,000 acres. Now, how big is 825,000 acres? Well, it's bigger than the state of Rhode Island or the country of Luxembourg. It is one big honking ranch. Now, you're going to have a, that kind of a size ranch. How many employees do you need to have? Well, I found that out too. They have 750 plus people who work on that ranch. So this landowner now that Jesus is talking about, he has two things in abundance. One of them is he has plenty of work and he's got plenty of money. And now he needs to go out and hire some workers. So he heads to the marketplace. And understand, the marketplace was where people who did not have a job of any kind would gather and wait for somebody to come and hire them. Uh, they literally have no job, uh, no money, no hope. Anything that would happen to them would be a blessing. So that's kind of the picture. Huge estate, big need, wealthy landowner, many un unemployed workers, and as the day unfolds, we see five different groups of people. Now, you heard these when Jimmy read you these words before, but let's go through them again. First of all, these, there's a group of guys that were hired when? At 6 a.m., when the, when the day began. Now, there's a lot to be said on these guys' behalf. Is that They were there. They got up early. They went. Uh, they negotiated their wages. Uh, they were hired first. And we say, well, that's really good. They contracted to do a day's work for a day's wage, which was a denarius. 
And that's good because that was the normal wage for a normal day's work in the first century. Those guys are pretty good. Well, then you got some other workers who are hired at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, there's more work to be done, and again, that's good. Um, these men are willing and able. That's good. Uh, they were offered a job. That's good. Uh, the landowner promised this time to pay them a fair wage. The wage is not mentioned, but that's okay. These guys are happy, clappy with that. Uh, they weren't promised a denarius, but they asked. They were asked to trust in the landlord's uh, sense of fairness. Well, then you got another group of guys who are hired at 12 noon. They get the same deal as the nine o'clock workers. And that's good also. Well, then there are the workers that are hired at three o'clock in the afternoon. They also get the same deal as the nine o'clock workers, and, and that's good too. And then you got this other group, the fifth hour, or the fifth ones. These are the workers who are hired at five o'clock in the afternoon. Now, there's only one hour left in the working day in the society at that day, which meant they're going to work just one hour. In this case, most of the day is gone, but they're ready to work, and we could say that's good, too. So there's a lot of good in this story. They got a job. It's good. But that last group is not promised anything at all. So these guys are going to work the least amount of hours, but and they went out with no promise whatsoever. And I'd say that's an interesting way to hire on to somebody to go and work for them and not knowing what you're going to get. So they had no idea what the landowner was going to do for them. They probably figured that they'd get a little bit. After all, they only work a little bit, but they couldn't even be very sure that they're going to get a little bit. So if we put it this way, I'm going to put this in theological terms so Jeff can understand here. <laughs> but in theological terms, it was grace that gave them the, got the job it was their faith that caused them to take it. That's my theological point for the day. Now, before we go any further, we can say this much about the owner. And we kind of back up the story. He could have ignored the last group of hires, but he didn't. Uh, that they were hired at all was purely a matter of grace. You know, God's riches at Christ's expense. He had lots of work. He had lots of money. And he also had lots of compassion. He cared even about the people who came in, we might say, came into the kingdom last. See, when the day's work is done, this is where the rubber hits the road. It's time to pay the workers. And as you heard before, as we read scripture, uh, he calls the foreman. And it says here, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now, that's kind of an unusual way to pay your workers, but it's not totally unheard of. Maybe he, well, maybe he's like me. I go to the coffee shop and they tell me how much my cup of coffee is. The first place I reach for is my left-hand pocket where my change is. I'm going to get that change. So when Diane says, well, your coffee is $4.57, well, I'm going to dig into I don't need any more change in my pocket. I just dig it. I just lay all my change on that counter. I just count it. I get, I get rid of that stuff. I'm not going to give her the stuff in the right hand, you know, which is all green, until last. Maybe that's the reason he's doing it. I'm not, I'm not really sure of. But the landowner has something here in mind. He pays the last group first in order to reveal the hidden motives of those hired earlier in the day. I mean, think about that for a moment. He's about to teach people a lesson by taking the last ones first. 
Now remember, which group was the only one with the contract? Group number one, those hired at six o'clock. They're the only ones who were actually promised that denarius. The others were there working purely by what we would call faith. And it seems the landowner wants his first group to see how generous he can be to those who trust him without a written agreement. Ponder that one for a while. But then here comes another little kicker in this story. Verse 9. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. I mean, that's an incredible amount of money for an hour's worth of work. And I'm sure the guys who got hired at 6 o'clock in the morning are standing around going, Whoa, baby, (laughs) if he's paying them a denarius for one hour's work, can you imagine what we are going to get who've been out here since 6 o'clock this morning? And by that standard, they expected 12 denarii for 12 hours worth of work. But remember, they'd only agreed to work all day for what? One. And that's all they got paid. I mean, after all, what? A deal is a deal. You make a deal. But here's the shocking statement to me when I, when I went through this parable. This is why I chose... You're probably wondering right now, why did you choose this goofy parable? Wasn't there another simpler one like the Good Samaritan? Well, in verse 10, this is what caught my eye. It says, now when those hired first came... They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now, I want you to put yourself in their sandals, those dusty sandals for a moment, and ask yourself, how would you feel about that? you just been out there slaving for 12 hours in the hot sun, and these bums who showed up at the last minute are getting the same amount of money that you're getting for working all day. Well, quite honestly, I'd be ticked. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to go, well, no, I just, no, I, I, I just, I, I would not be happy clappy, believe me. It just wouldn't make any sense to me. And uh, probably all of you would feel the same way. We'd all stand around and we'd go, we'd do a lot of go good swing. <laughs> we'd all do a lot of grumbling and a lot of murmuring against the landowner. And, uh, We'd feel sorry for ourselves. In fact, in verse 12, it says, They they grumbled. These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching sun. We're you know, indignant. Now, I know they're grumbling, but anybody here? Would you have been in that crowd too and grumbled? Yeah, I think we all would. So, so what's at the heart here of this complaint? I mean, fundamentally, it's that little phrase... You have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. It's not that they minded the latecomers getting paid, and it's not really bothering them so much that the latecomers actually got a denarius, but verse 10 said they thought they would get more. Now, when I'm going through this text, there were four words that popped up in my mind. I remember scribbling down a piece of paper as I was kind of writing my sermon. The four words were observation, expectation, consternation, and detonation. Now, what that, I had to figure that out, what I, what I was thinking about. Well, first there was observation. They saw the landowner, the latecomers being paid. Then came the expectation. Well, they assumed they'd get more. 
But then came the consternation when they realized what was happening and finally it came to detonation. Everything exploded because things blew up when they found out that everybody was getting the same amount of money. Now, ultimately, they weren't complaining against the other workers. They really weren't. Their beef was with the landowner. And in doing so, they forgot that without him, they would not have even had a job. And for the groups that were hired at 9 o'clock and noon and 3, he never promised them that he would pay them more or less than anybody else. He simply promised to give them a fair shake, a fair wage, which he did. Now, if we look at this story, and we kind of stop, we kind of look at this, and I've taught this before in high school uh, religion classes, and I've taught it in Bible classes before. And I ask people, what do you think about this story so far? Well, there's some people who look at this and feel a little bit of sympathy for these workers who worked hard all day and got kind of (laughs) gypped out of some extra money. After all, the same things probably happened to us, too. I don't know if this ever happened to you. Uh, You felt at the end of the day, I didn't get what I was expecting to get for what I was about to do. See, we work hard, and what happens? I get credit, but other people get more credit. Or I work really hard, and I get credit, but they get equal amount of credit. That doesn't seem to be very fair. So you find yourself kind of secretly off to the side. I imagine people, Jesus is telling this story, a bunch of people on the other side, they're kind of like, secretly cheering for these workers and say, come on, stand up for your rights. They usually pick it a little bit. Call the, uh, they probably didn't have the AFL-CIO back in the day. Call your union leaders. Don't let your boss push you around. And friends, that's exactly why Jesus told this story. He knew we would instinctively root for the wrong side. I mean, when Jesus told this story, it got to the point where it was kind of like an aha moment for both. Oh man, he got us again. Because who did we stand up for? That first group of people. So what's the cause then of all of our grumbling? Not that any of you are grumblers. Well, not that any of you aren't grumblers, I guess I should say. Not, I'm a grumbler. What's the root cause? Well, it's a little four-letter word called envy. Envy. It's a belief that we're not, that others are getting what they do not deserve, and we're not getting what we do deserve. And then we root for the wrong side because we think we're like that early group that started early and worked all day in our own eyes. We believe that we are the ones who really work hard, we, and we get so little in return for all that we do. Does that ever creep into the church? Man, I do everything at my church. And nobody ever says thank you to me. And other people, they do one simple little thing and the pastor goes crazy and brings them up to the front and says, Oh man, let me tell you what, this is just not fair. The our problem really isn't with fellow workers. Our problems with God. That may seem kind of harsh, but that's where our problem lies. Are you envious, the guy said, because I am generous? When you boil it down, grumbling is only a, a symptom. It, 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 you've got a problem with God. 
who are mad at him because we think he was better to someone else than he was to us. Uh, we think when we look at our life, we're kind of getting the short end of the stick and everybody else is getting all of the grace. And But, you know, guess what? That's kind of the way it is in the world anyway, isn't it? You know, we kind of think we're like the 6 a.m. workers. Uh, we showed up early. We worked hard. We bore all the labor. Everybody else just kind of stood around and did next to nothing. But I don't think that's the way God sees it. See, God's view is that we are like the men who are idle all day until 5 o'clock and at the last second found work to do. See, for those men, their reward is all out of proportion for their work. But see, grumbling comes from a couple of different things. One of them is we overestimate our importance. I mean, it'd be easy to say, man, this place would die if I weren't involved. (laughs) If I weren't the one doing this, this would really be a disaster. We overestimate our value. I think we've already kind of figured out here at Restore, if somebody's not here, somebody else just steps up and does the job. And that's ought to be the way it is. Now, the second, we sometimes underestimate the grace of God. God is such a gracious God. This parable is not just teaching us about rewards. It's kind of probing at our motives for doing our service. I mean, why are we doing what we do? Um, I mean, if, if it's a straight reward you want, fine, uh, you'll get it, but that's all you're going to get. Uh, and you get to heaven someday grumbling all the way. Uh, always checking to see how your life is going by comparing yourself with someone else. But if you decide to do whatever it is God has called you to do for the Lord's sake, you will never, ever be disappointed. So how do we cure a grumbling heart? I mean, I could stop the sermon there and we all welcome home. Oh, man, that was a bummer. <laughs> so what am I going to do about my go-gutsui? How am I going to cure my grumbling heart? Well, our text gives us three really great answers. Here's the very first thing, and I think you could probably guess some of these things. Uh, thank God for the blessings you already have experienced. I've been in the ministry since 1966 teaching or pastoring, almost 40 years of that pastoring and the other remaining years teachering. But, you know, the longer I serve the Lord, the more critical this seems to be. Uh, Before you grumble, thank God for all your blessings. I mean, that's the one nice thing about getting a little bit older. You can look back and say, man, God was really good. Look at that. I meant when I thought I was, man, God was there. God was there. Oh, this didn't work out very well, but guess what? God was there. God bless this, in spite of the fact I wasn't very prepared, but God did it anyway. And so before you grumble, just thank God for what you got. You see, the men who worked all day and then felt cheated forgot that if the owner hadn't come along in the first place, they wouldn't have had a job, they wouldn't even have their one denarius. I mean, it's kind of like, how much better to say, thank God for the many good things that he's given me. I don't think there's anybody here today that can't say, God has truly blessed me in many ways. I mean, I could just go right now. I could start up here with Lena and say, if God blessed you, Lena, you could say, well, I got these five beautiful girls. Greg could say, yeah, and guess what? They came because I married a beautiful woman. I was, we could go all the way down through the list. Now, God has blessed us in a variety of ways. 
I mean, here, here's a second way. Don't judge yourself by the way God treats somebody else. Uh, that's the heart of the problem. The grumbler can't keep his eyes off of these more fortunate guys. I mean, looking at other people and how they appear to be blessed is, it gets us into trouble. It, this may sound odd, but honest friends, God is not obligated to treat us all alike. Uh, he's not bound by standards of fairness. That may sound odd, too. See, if he chooses to bless somebody, if he chooses to bless Lou more than somebody else, more than he blesses me, guess what? That's God's business. That's not my business. I ought to say, man, Lou, you've been blessed. And not worry. No, I'm going to say that's God's business if he does that. See, a lot of people kind of struggle with this concept because they think it's that God did something for somebody and that God is bound to do the same thing for you. I've lived long enough to realize that that's not true. I mean, I've seen people just say, they're, they're blessed they're blessed so much. I look at it, I go, oh, wow. Look what God's done in their lives. Now, have I ever gone, I wonder what he's going to get around to me? Yeah, I've done that. I will admit that. But the times are less and less and less because I suddenly realize what God has actually blessed me with. See, God can deliver your neighbor from cancer, and you can die from cancer, or vice versa. Uh, envying your neighbor because you know, he or she has something you don't have, well, uh, that's a waste of time because God treats us as individuals, and he doesn't treat us as groups. The truth is he might do for you exactly what he's done for someone else, or sometimes he may do more for you than he did for somebody else. Or sometimes he'll actually do less for you than he did for somebody else. And sometimes he'll do something completely different for you that you weren't even expecting. Why is that? Four words. He's God. You're not. That's the answer. Why God can do what God wants to do. He can deal with you and me any way he chooses. Here's the third thing. Remember that God rewards faithfulness and not production. See, we live in a world that puts premium on production. Uh, You know, I've been asked some silly questions. I've, I've been in gatherings of pastors. Some of the questions pastors ask other pastors is really ridiculous. They always say, so how big is your congregation? I feel like saying, who cares? <laughs> that's the way I sometimes, I just say, well, that's nice, nice sight. If you, okay, come on, tell how, how many? And then when you say, well, right now we have a uh, hundred people. Oh, well, I guess um, God's not blessing you right now, is he? I've heard that one. I've heard this. How much money do you make being a pastor? And I, I've actually responded to people. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I, did, I don't know. <laughs> well, don't you get a paycheck? Yeah, it's the one time my wife said, every, every couple of weeks says, handsome over. That's the one time I get called handsome. <laughs> she could tell you how much money I probably make. I have no idea. Or, well, you're a pastor of a pretty big church now. How many books have you written? Like everybody has to write a book. 
How many degrees do you have? Uh, 98.6. <laughs> Is that a good enough answer? Uh, when are you going to get that bigger church? Oh, guys, I don't need a bigger one. I'll take one that has 15, 20 people. How's your career? See, we, we play that game. We reduce the Christian life to a mechanical process. And we can do that in a Christianity. Are you praying enough to Greg? Like, I, like somehow I know how much it should be. Are you praying enough? Um, are you in Bible study enough, Nancy? You know, there's always more you could be doing. Uh, or so much work in church. Oh, let's see. I was standing around looking at the people who volunteered for the potluck, and I didn't see somebody bring in. Yeah. Does it ever seep into a church somewhere? Yeah, it does. See, we're production-oriented. That's the way the world works. Produce or you're fired. But God's point of view is amazingly different. The world looks at production. The Lord inspects motive. Why do we do what we do? Now, the world says, "Why do? what did you do? God says, why did you do it? The world says, what's the bottom line? And God says, were you doing it for me? The world says, show me your stuff. And God says, show me your heart. So here's the truth. You can't tell by looking at other people where you stand with the Lord. That's what Jesus means when he says the last will be first and the first will be last. See, this parable really is teaching us equality. We hear that word an awful lot today in our society. Equality, equality. God deals with people the way God needs to deal with people. But this is a quality, not of opportunity, but of faithfulness. And it's a wonderful antidote to grumbling and looking at it this way. God is just. Uh, no one will be underpaid. God is generous. Everyone will be surprised by what God blesses them with in life. See, if you want justice all the time, you're going to grumble all the way. Uh, but if we all we want is grace then we'll remember that we were idle before God ever called us from the marketplace into his kingdom and gave us a job to do. See, there's the good news. The master is coming to the marketplace. And the master comes to the marketplace again and again and says, I need workers in my kingdom. And friends, in his kingdom, there's plenty of work to do. There's no doubt about it. There's more work in God's kingdom to go around than you realize but he's always looking for workers. And you don't need to worry about the salary either. That's the cool thing. After all, the scripture says, he owns all the cattle, all the cows on a thousand hills. See, the question is this. What opportunity has the Lord given you? I mean, just think about that for a while. You may have to think about that for a while. What opportunity has the Lord given you in his kingdom? Or maybe you might ask, am I still standing in the marketplace? (laughs) Has Jesus called you into the vineyard? Well, if he has, then only one thing should occupy your mind, and that is to do the job he's called you to with the power that he supplies you. And as you do that, here's the promise at the end of this little verse, at this end of the little parable, according to your faithfulness, And far beyond is your reward. That's the good news. The reward is still to come.
May God bless us as we try to get out of this Grumblers Anonymous group and into the kingdom or the people that just work in his kingdom.